0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming, and welcome to this edition of uh, Africa Now, Africa Now. Um, This is a monthly uh, seminar uh, arranged by the Norwegian Council for Africa that addresses uh, relevant uh, social, political or economic uh, issues uh, on the African continent. Um, And speaking of the Norwegian uh, (laughs) Council for Africa, it's possible to become a member. So if you're not already, I would very much encourage you to do so. Um, and with that out of the way, I'm gonna give the word over to, uh, um, to Selina, who is the head of uh, the uh, working group for Decent Work, um, which arranged this seminar. Thank you, Andrea. Um, so,
1: Today in the panel, uh, we're lucky to have uh, Katrine Janssen, who is the founder for Sustainable Partners. Uh, she previously worked at Virke as an ex- executive program manager for international trade, and she is a board member of the Norwegian African Business Association. Uh, and then we have Dr. Grieve Chelva, all the way from South Africa. is uh, a senior lecturer in economics uh, at the Graduate School of Business uh, at the University of Cape Town. And he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for African Studies at Harvard University. And then we have Andreas Boxnes, who is a professor of economics at the University of Oslo. And his current research interests include international trade and firm responses to the globalization, productivity, and reallocation in product markets, as well as the interaction between trade and multinational production. Sounds a bit like a dating app, (laughs) but... (laughs) Uh, Tomorrow, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement will enter into force. Twenty-two countries have ratified the agreement, and every African Union member, except from Nigeria, Benin and Eritrea, has signed. Does this mean that we're moving towards Kwame Nkrumah's dream of the United Nations of Africa? Or is this, as the Nigerian Labour Congress put it, a renewed, extremely dangerous and radioactive neoliberal policy initiative? (laughs) Please debate. We're going to start uh, at the beginning uh, with the agreement itself. So how comprehensive is this agreement?
2: Nice to be here, nice to see everybody. I've seen some friends in the audience, Camilla, Victor, so it's nice to see everybody here. Um, And this is a Norwegian summer, by the way. I was misled into thinking it would be warmer. (laughs) Um, So how comprehensive is this agreement? Um, So, on paper, as a free trade agreement, I think it's as comprehensive as one can get. I mean, there's some things that one can nitpick with. Um, Of course, there's, I suppose, later on in the evening, we'll talk about some of those things that one can nitpick with. But I think it's sort of a good attempt, if I can say. I'll reserve some stuff for later. Yeah.
3: So, I think it's important to, um, to keep in mind that, you know, this is nowhere near like an economic union. It's nowhere near. The European Union for example uh, this is a free trade agreement so it's not even a customs union uh, the European Union is a customs union meaning that you know there's a, an external tariff that's if you're gonna import uh, from China th- there's a tariff and that's the same regardless of whether you're in France or in Germany uh, that's a customs union so this is not a customs union so the tariff uh, importing from China from uh, South Africa or Sierra Leone really only could be different um, that also means that you have to keep all the uh, customs cl- clearing facilities in place at the border between every country, right? So you can't just, you know, uh, transport a package from one country to the other without any paperwork. You still have to go through the paperwork to clear everything through through customs. So, So I think that's important to keep in mind that, you know, this is not about... You know, it's it's lowering tariffs, so, you know, it's going to be less costly to trade, but you still have to stop at the border to clear everything. Uh, And certainly there's no, uh, at the moment, no uh, uh, movement of... There's no free movement of labor so that we have uh, uh, in in the European Union. But there's going to be uh, easier to to trade goods, it's going to be easier to trade services, and it's going to be easier to invest, I think, although I don't think we know a lot of the details set at, uh, at the current stage. Um, so that's kind of where we are.
4: Uh, no, I think that um, the idea, it's they call it a partnership uh, instead of just a, an ordinary free trade a- agreement because they want to have it as um, to include investments. But the investments is coming in phase two. So right now we are only in phase one and there are quite a few uncertainties, um, mentioning uh, movement of people and movement of labor. It's part of the protocol, but it's not yet signed by enough countries. So they have, they have agreed to start, but then they have several different protocols relating to several different issues. And each issue will then have to be discussed and debated, signed, uh, and then authorized before they can start. And every protocol then has needs a certain amount of uh, signatures in order to do it. And in regards of uh, uh, the movement of people, they're not yet um, agreed on an AU passport. It depends on uh, the different countries, how they want to do it. But I think that the whole idea um, that they are moving more in the same direction and i think that's a good thing um bringing uh, or starting with the 2063 agenda um and that's you know the building on that one and uh, that's all about the development of the whole continent which is a good starting point but it is only a starting point
1: so they're still at the starting point but they're hopefully getting somewhere Mm-hmm. Uh, but today there are a number of small uh, regional trade blocks uh, is this an attempt to uh, replace these smaller blocks? Uh, how do they relate to the larger agreements uh, or is it or will they just function within it is this an attempt to uh, to eradica- eradicate them or how does it relate
2: um, so I mean, just to add on to what, before I come to the sort of answer of what the other colleagues have said. I mean, so, in principle, the biggest puzzle has been how little intra-African trade mm. takes place, right? I think there are varying estimates, but it's quite clear that majority of Africa's trade is with the outside world, outside Africa as opposed to w- with itself. Uh, I think it ranges between 10% or 20% of all, Africa's trade is with itself, the rest is with the rest of the world. So obviously, this is a good idea in getting more intra-African trade. Um, is, is that a good thing? I, I think so, for many reasons, I mean. Um, uh <coughs> so the big issue then has been what has been the hindrance to intra-African trade. So I think the African Union's idea is that if we can agree to reduce tariffs, like Andreas has said, maybe we can get moves, goods moving between amongst ourselves. Um, so. To my mind, it's not very clear that it's tariffs. Well, it's possibly that it is tariffs that have been a barrier. But tariffs have come down generally across the world. Uh, because of, I mean, tariffs are much lower now everywhere than they were. Uh, the world. I think the African Union says the average tariff rate to intra-African trade is about 6%. So that's pretty low, given the global average. Um, so I think when you asked the question about comprehensiveness in the beginning, what I was going to say was, um, I think a big challenge has been infrastructure. So when you ask me a question about, co- is this comprehensive enough? When I l- read the documents, I want to see some story about infrastructure, you know, because I think the big challenge has been infrastructure. We often don't trade with each other, not because we don't have an, a document that tells us to trade, but I think it's because we just can't get to each other. Uh. So if I live in Cape Town, to get from Cape Town to Camilla's favorite city, which is Lagos, to get from Cape Town to Lagos, uh, it is almost impossible by road. It is almost impossible. Uh, so if you don't have a highway, you don't have railway network, those something. of things. So I think, so when you ask the question about comprehensiveness, this is sort of what I had in mind. Now, about the regional economic blocks, um, when you read the text of the agreement on the African Union's website, I think they say this should supersede, that's what they say. So they said it should replace the Southern African development community, should replace the East African community. Uh, Any time that the two are not in agreement, then the free trade agreement supersedes. But like Andreas has said, we don't really know the details. How is this going to work out in practice and those kind of things. But the idea is I think it's to replace these other regional economic blocks.
4: Yeah, I also think that um, reading up on this one, uh, the last couple of days, um, they also talk about that the trade blocks already there should continue. Um, and preferably it's the best practice or the best result that they want the different c- countries to move for- forward with. So if, if there's lower tariffs within the block, continue with that until we, uh, the whole free trade area is on the same level. But if the uh, level in the free trade area is on a better level, that means hence lower tariffs, then, then they should use that. So is the best practice principle in a different manner uh,
3: so I, I thought i um, perhaps could just add the piece of uh, trade theory to you guys um <laughs> so and it's not going to be very very easy um so so what trade economists really like is organizations such as the WTO where you basically have to have the same tariff for all your trading partners right so it's saying well, if I'm importing from China and the tariff is 5%, well, then i, I got to charge a 5% tariff to Vietnam as well. I can't, I can't set different tariffs according to WTO rules. And that's a great principle because that means that we don't discriminate against our trading partners. right? So these regional trade agreements in Africa or, or elsewhere is like an alphabet soup of different, different partnerships and stuff like that. That's basically... Uh, not, not, not. We, as economists, we don't really like that because it means that well, I can have a zero tariff for one country, but a ten percent tariff for another country, and that's really about discriminating trading partners, right? So, so ideally, I think from an economic point of view, what you would want to do is to really replace the, those that alphabet soup with one, uh, one union, right? And that's it. Now, in practice, there might be political reasons or other, other reasons for that not happening, but I think that's, that should be really the goal here.
1: But how does this really, how is this different from the previous attempts to create the regional trading block? Is there something new, or or is this just something that you tried before?
2: Uh, so like to create a sort of continental wide trading, uh, I think this is new. Uh, in many ways, I think. So there's sort of continental impetus to get this done. So, I mean, there was a big summit in Kigali, I think, where the whole thing was adopted. Um, and then they want to create a secretariat to sort of operationalize and implement things. So I think this is, this is as an idea, it's sort of getting us to what you said, Kwame Nkrumah wanted, eh? So as an idea, it's good. Of course, there's lots of implementational issues that need to be resolved. There's things about tariffs, these things about regional economic blocks, um, the resistance from Nigeria, like you said. Um, but this is new. I think we haven't, uh, as a continent, we haven't had something like this as an idea, right? So this is an attempt to operationalize something that started in the 60s, so. Yeah.
4: I think you're right. Uh, and coming back to you talking about uh, infra- infrastructure, uh, I think that one thing is the tariffs, of course. Uh, but another huge bottleneck is all of the other trade barriers which the non-tariff barriers, which is actually um, what is stopping uh, physically. Um, and if you remove... IMF, I think, have calculated that if you remove... Uh, the non-tariff barriers, you can f- uh, quadruple intra-African trade. So there's huge potential if the policies are in place, if they really want to do something
3: about it. So uh, I just want to add one thing, perhaps to, to create uh, some disagreement among the um, <laughs> pa- <laughs> panel members here. So, so y- y- you know, you mentioned that uh, well, tariffs are pretty low. It's really infrastructure. That is needed. Uh, I certainly agree with you that the infrastructure is needed, but I, I don't think we should uh, downplay the role of tariffs either. It is the case that uh, tariffs among developing countries are much higher than among rich countries. On average, the last time I looked at the data, it was you know maybe fifteen percent or so on average among developing countries, and perhaps two, three, four percent among among uh, developed countries. Um, it is also the case that if you look at the share of government revenue that comes from tariffs, mm-hmm. that's around fifteen percent on average among African countries. Think about that. You know in Norway, the, 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 the income the ta- tax income that we're getting from, from tariffs is, is basically zero, and the same thing for even for the us that these days claims some tariffs from, from China. That's just you know uh, peanuts compared to total government revenue, so so uh, you know so so but that and that also points to to a potential risk, right? If you suddenly take tariffs down to zero, well, you have to you have to get that sixteen percent of government income from somewhere else. I think so. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: so I wanted to talk a little about a uh, bit about the income disparity. Um, I read that uh, this agreement will have the greatest uh, income disparity of any continental free trade bloc. So, yep. uh, what has been done, or what can be done, to ensure that all countries, regardless of size or political standing, uh, get to benefit from uh, from this? Because it's, I mean, it's a huge difference between the different countries, right, in wealth and and size.
2: Um, so let me start um, so yeah, just because Andreas created a disagreement so <laughs> I suppose it's only right that one keeps a disagreement going um, yeah, Andreas is right uh, that tariffs uh, sort of developing country tariffs the rest of the world are much higher on average, but I think tariffs towards African countries amongst themselves as I understand it are much lower than the global average Right. so um, if Tariffs were the complete story, and I'm not saying tariffs are not part of the equation. Certainly tariffs explain the law, partly the law in African trade, but we also have to look at other things. So even if tariffs came to zero today, I cannot get my container from Lusaka, Zambia to Lagos without having to go to a port of Dar es Salaam or going to Durban or, you know, those kinds of things. So I think yeah, that's a story. Uh, also, the point about Andreas is right that uh, many countries rely on tariff revenues. Uh, certainly a non-negligible portion of government revenues, but as I understand it now, this goes to the assumptions of these models which are projecting glorious things from the trade agreement. If GDP quadruples or whatever, then revenues from other sources, some corporate income tax, those kinds of things, pay as you earn, labor income, those are supposed to compensate. At least that's the, those are the arguments the African Union is making, that there might be a compensatory effect from the GDP growing. Um, Now, oh, yes, the question was about income disparities. Um, Yeah, that's true. And I think so one of the motivating factors for pushing along this free trade agreement is that the structure of trade that happens intra-Africanly is different to the one that happens outside Africa. So it turns out that most of the stuff that we export outside of the continent is raw materials, commodities. This is historically sort of uh, a... um, a relic from the colonial era, right, so uh, we are incorporated into the world economy via those raw commodities, but the intra African trade stuff, at least according to the united uh, to the a uh, u is mostly manufactured stuff that 's what they 're saying a big chunk about half of it is manufactured stuff. but then if you look closely, most of that is come from south Africa right so south Africa is really benefiting uh, so you 're right this, if it is not managed properly, will entrench some of those. Uh, differences, And that is why some countries have been very hesitant to sign. That's why some countries have been very hesitant to ratify. I also understand Nigeria's fears because they fear that this might just be dominated by South Africa and then might then uh, entrench disparities from that point of view. So what can be done? Um, it's smart policy, I, you have to coordinate this somehow. It has to be coordinated at the continental level to figure out these disparities, to sort of say, how can we ameliorate these disparities? How can we compensate for those who might lose? Because I imagine a very small country like Zambia, where I'm from, uh, you uh, I mean, uh, uh, y- you could easily be crushed by somebody else who has a much bigger manufacturing base than you. Kenya might crush you. you know. You, uh, um, South Africa might crush you. And those kinds of things, yeah.
4: Indeed. Um, but they have also... Um, Divided the countries into two different blocks. So they are also, they have a group that they called uh, least developed countries, and they do not have to move as fast as the rest of the countries, which I find uh, both interesting and um, the right way to do, the right way to go about it. Uh, And I also think that just like the EU have done, certain countries have their own um, industry that they are allowed to have a certain um, handover, uh, that they can take care more of a certain industry if it is vital for the whole country. And I think that's also a way to go about it um, on the African continent, so that you will ensure so the, the politicians have to be smart and think about how should we do it without you know, alienating people. Uh, if you only have one thing, you have to be able to control that to a certain extent. You cannot let neighboring c- countries just roll over you because then one in the pack will, d- will disappear. But they have already thought of something, uh, how they will move forward. I think that's for us to find out.
1: So they have allowed like, a certain degree of protection for, s- from well, for some areas? Well,
4: at least they have a group called least developed countries. They see that there are differences. They have acknowledged that. Uh, and then you have to take it to the next level. And of course, right now, we don't know anything about that.
3: So uh, I I think there are two issues here. So so first, uh, you mentioned that there are huge uh, differences in income across countries. um, And that's certainly true. Um, And I want to make two points about that. So so first of all, is we we could still, you know, Africa is Africa and Europe is Europe. But I still think we can make some some connections. So when um, the Eastern European bloc entered the European Union, for example, Poland. Wages, real wages in Poland, were roughly s- somewhere between ten and twenty percent of Norwegian wages, depending on how you measure it. So we're talking about income disparities of roughly a factor of ten when Poland entered the European economy, and that's a big, pretty, pretty big difference. also perhaps not as big as in Africa, but still sizable, I would say. Um, and you know, after now, a few decades with European integration, I think it's fair to say that you know we didn't crush Poland. Uh, uh, Poland is still Poland they' they're there, and they seem to be be doing pretty pretty well. Um, I think there's also a theoretical argument to be made here as well, kind of going all the way back like hundreds of years for with economic theory, essentially saying that well, even though you have low productive countries and high productive countries. There's still going to be some gains from trade. So, even, even if uh, South Africa is better in any, all kinds of manufacturing uh, uh, compared to another country, there's still going to be gains for both countries uh, uh, in, in that case. So, that's a very kind of deep uh, economic um, uh, uh, lesson, I think, that, uh, that, but it's, I also think it's something, uh, truth, truth to that, in, like empirically. Um, now, uh, I guess we also talked about income disparity within countries, right? So you can certainly imagine that there are winners and losers um, uh, uh, within a country when there's, there's more economic integration. Um, and certainly, you know, people in um, working in Im- import-competing sectors will almost always lose when there's economic integration. But of course, the flip side of that is that people working in the export sector or the sectors that might be an export sector if tariffs are coming down or if there are new roads or, or better customs clearance, those, those people are going to gain. Right? So I think it's, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that those disparities are going to arise. But I, I think also then what we need to do is to to make sure that you know people can can quit their job in that import competing sector and hopefully find find jobs elsewhere in the economy. That that may sound easy, like in my ivory tower, uh, like we're. <laughs> but uh, but you know we have to try to, to make that part part of this as well. Um, yeah, I had one more thing, but now I forgot. So
1: <laughs> but agree, uh, you mentioned Nigeria. Uh, And I would have thought that that would be one of the huge economies that would have benefited from an agreement like this, but they're they're not signing uh, yet, and they're not ratifying. And and what does that mean for the agreement? And also, as I said before, the Nigerian Labour Congress described the trade agreement as a renewed, extremely dangerous and radioactive neoliberal policy initiative, which is quite strong. (laughs) Uh, What does this mean? Why is Nigeria opposed to the agreement, or are there?
2: Um, you're right, Nigeria is curious. I think it's curious that they're sort of, I think how do we know that they're opposed, or at least they're not partial to the idea? They haven't signed. I mean, so signing is simple. You just sign the thing, uh, and then there's a the stage of ratification at the parliament level, which is much more difficult. But just signing, which is just signing, and it's, you know, they haven't done even that. I think they, like you said, they're one of the last three that haven't done it, so it's pretty bizarre. but. One can also understand, I, I, I imagine, um, so Nigeria is a big market. So for anybody who's got a very good manufacturing base, there are 150 million plus people there, it's a great market for you. You're going to make a lot of money. But I don't think they have a big enough manufacturing base quite as yet relative to a sort of the North African con- countries and South Africa, Kenya, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, this is just my attempt to try to understand what's going on in Nigerian policymakers' head, but I, I understand. I mean, their fears are not without foundation. Um, um, so one thing I want to do again is to respond to Andreas' comment about uh, uh, Poland. Um, so I think it also goes back to the thing you said earlier. So I don't know uh, the Poland story very well, but my sense is Poland has didn't have a zero industrial base. or uh, I mean, there was something there that you could build on to to exploit the fact that you can now sell to the rest of Europe. Also, what you had, I think a point you made earlier, was free mobility of labor. So Polish people could move, right? Uh, So so the theory has to also admit for the fact that there's some people who are moving, and that might be pushing up wages also. I don't know, but also there's a trade effect that's pushing up wages. So I think those are the things that I think we need to sort out in the free trade agreement in Africa, that look, it should also be easy for losers to be able to move to where the jobs are being created, right? So if South Africa is enjoying good for them, it's good, and it's true what Andrea said. The theory says we all benefit from trade, and that's true. I think that's not under dispute. I think the the part where we have, we are sort of not so sure about is who benefits the most, like the winners and losers. On net basis, which is irritating economic way of thinking, on net we all are better off. Yes, okay, you are better off, but I lost, that kind of stuff. And the stuff you have to think about deeply because we're now uh, in the US, the losers, those people felt like they'd been left behind, voted a certain way, and now we are, we are where we are. The same thing with Brexit, this kind of stuff. Um, so I think we, exactly, thinking more deeply about how do people move to where their jobs are. I mean, if I lose my job in Zambia, can I go to Kenya, which has, which, which has done it? Can I move to South Africa? Can Nigerians move to South Africa? Right? So South is selling all this stuff to them, oh very well. But can we also move to where the jobs are? And this sort of part of the story. Um,
3: I just want to follow
2: up on one thing. So
3: I, I literally kn- know nothing about Nigerian politics. But uh, I'm going to say something about it anyway. <laughs> 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 so, um, uh, I, I certainly agree that it's, it's strange that they, there's so much on the outside of this. Um, so um, I, I can think of two, two reasons just speculating widely here. The first is that, as you said, it's a huge market, right? It's the, it's certain, the, it's the biggest country. And that also means that whatever gains there is from trading with outside countries is going to be much smaller. Because you know they already have a huge market. It's the same with the U.S., right? The U.S. doesn't uh, gain that much by trading with Canada, but Canada gains a lot by trading with the U.S., right? So so Nigeria is a little bit in the same position. So maybe then they don't really care that much, right? <laughs> um, now there's an, there's another hypothesis as well, and that's you know the Trump hypothesis that you know there 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 are some uh, policymakers there, and they're in bed with the import competing. Uh, sector, right? So the import competing sector has a huge lobbying power uh, over politicians, and that's why you see this. I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, I can certainly imagine that is.
4: It might be just right. Um, I think that it's quite interesting that the Chamber of Commerce, the Nigerian Chamber of Commerce, they want this. The manufacturer, in the uh, Kenyan manufacturing associations, do not want this. Yeah. So I think that's, um, if not proof but it is at least something that, uh, to, to your part of this. Uh, but I think that when you look at uh, e-commerce bubbling and the entrepreneurs and the ecosystem in Nigeria bubbling, There are so much coming out of Nigeria, so much within uh, financial technology, um, the whole ecosystem, uh, e-commerce, uh, Jumia, who is just you know uh, on the IPO. And I think all of that will lose. Uh, if Nigeria do not enter this um, free trade area agreement. And then you you might find yourself that the old and the established want to hang back, but the younger, the entrepreneurial spirit, they want to move forward. And at one point, they will lead and make decisions also uh, in um, elections. So it's going to be interesting, but there are some good... Vibes coming out from uh, Nigeria right now. They are talking about that they will sign. So we'll see.
1: But do you think that the Nigerian Labour Congress has uh, some point in their concern? Do you understand them, like why they are concerned?
2: Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the the the. Resident Nigerian labor unions expert is Camila Holland over there, so <laughs> <laughs> she should say something at some point about the unions in Nigeria. Um, I, To be honest, I mean, if to the extent, and Andreas has said, I mean, uh, theory and empirics say they're gonna be losers. Uh, the import competing industries, people lose jobs. So from that point of view, I think it's quite sensible for the union to be saying, look, what about the people who lose? Yes, we'll have cheaper goods, who have more goods, you know, um, and that, that's a benefit to the economy as a whole, but then what about us, the ones who have to compete with South African uh, goods, uh, textiles from Lesotho, that kind of thing. So I think, I, I think they are on strong grounds, and their concerns have to be taken into account. Uh, so I'm, I'm
1: going to draw a a bit back to, to Norway because we're here. Um, s- I want to know what you see are the consequences for Norway or or countries in the EU. Uh, will there be any difference? Uh will they be making trade agreements with the bloc as a whole or or will it still be possible to make bilateral agreements? Um
3: so um I think the short answer is I don't think this is going to matter much for Norway, uh, simply because uh, the share of trade with, with Africa is very, very small. Uh, I think these days 75, almost 80, you may, maybe you know this better, around 75-80% of trade is going to the European Union. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Um, so uh, so you know, all in all, uh, for the aggregate economy of Norway, this, this doesn't matter. Um, now you you made uh, you you ask whether uh, Norway would want to do or implement a trade agreement with um, uh, with this free trade area, and there I think we know the answer, and the answer is no, um, simply because uh, as long as this is a free trade agreement and not a customs union, we have to negotiate country by country. If at some p- Point uh, this FTA go be becomes something uh, deeper. If it becomes a union, or uh, then it's different. Then uh, we might want to, to make an agreement with the, with the whole the whole union. But currently, that's uh, that's not going to happen. Um, yeah.
4: No, I think you're very really right. And uh, Norway has a few uh, free trade agreements. Uh, most of the free trade agreements are with EFTA. And even EFTA is too small to be interesting. Uh, we are still, uh, the EU has uh, an agreement with Vietnam. We just hang on, nothing happens. The EU has an agreement with the East African community. We haven't even looked into it. So I think that for Norway, um, it doesn't really matter that much because we are too small. We're not that interesting as a trading bloc either. Unfortunately, we're not that big. <laughs> um,
1: we have another question about... Uh, uh, what about um, the agreement in relation to countries that are under sanctions? Uh, for instance, how does it affect trade with the bloc if one of its members uh, is under a weapons embargo, for instance? Will, it, will this affect us or Norway or the EU or... Be
2: difficult. I have no idea. I, I defer to my Norwegian colleagues. <laughs> 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 uh, this is a difficult question.
3: <laughs> and um, <All> yours. <laughs> yeah, so really, I, I don't know. But but I think may, perhaps I could just repeat my previous answer. That as long as this is uh, an FDA and not not a customs union, I mm-hmm. think uh, you know uh, there's going to be. Treat, treatment of individual countries and not the whole bloc. Um, so so from that perspective, I don't think anything's going to change compared to what's the status quo today. Mm.
1: Uh, so in just a very short while, we're going to open up for all your questions. I, I bet you have a lot. Um, but uh, we're going to give you the possibility to answer my first questions. So are we heading towards fulfilling uh, Kwame Nkrumah's dream? Uh or is this a neoliberal project destined to fail? Please.
2: Start. Yes. Okay. Um I mean I I think I like um sorry, I forgot the name. Rina. Katrina. I I like Katrina, I get good vibes about uh, the trade agreement. Um yeah, I think it's a good step. I mean we know we need to trade more with ourselves. Um and I mean, partly it's because, as the AU has put it, the structure of intra-African trade is different to the structure of trade with the outside world. It's much more manufactures, which is kind of nice. You know, uh, when you when you export manufactured goods, your, uh, your export earnings are much more stable. You know, they're not so uh, affected by the swings in commodity cycles. Uh, so those things are sort of admirable. And I think the history, from history we know that Countries that most, most of the countries that have developed have had to industrialize at some point. That's why we call them industrialized countries, right? Um, so in, from that point of view, it's, it's a good idea, but we need to think hard about it. There are all these problems, challenges, anxieties, you know, and uh, we, can't li- we can't wish that certain things will happen. So that's the neoliberal idea that just leave things be and magic will happen and uh, everybody will be saying kumbaya, right? We have to plan everything somehow, you know. So there's, I think, need for industrial policy, all these problems about, okay, who's going to be producing what, you know. I, I know uh, the economists tend to be anxious about these kinds of things, planning. But I think you have to plan it in some ways. There are things that you need to plan. You need to have a big, big development banks that can fund ideas, fund manufacturing ideas, fund infrastructure, sort of like put the framework, lay the framework or lay the ground for coordination, lay the ground so that you can limit the losses, those kinds of things, you know, we we can't just say, okay, voila, we have this agreement, no tariffs, now trade, no, we can't do that, we have to say, okay, maybe let's think about who's going to do what, I mean, it's delicate, but you have to put thought into it. You can't just allow this to materialize automatically. It has to be a managed process, a very carefully managed process, so that at the end of the day, you don't want... I mean, the agreement says somebody can, after five years, they can say, I don't like being in this agreement, and then I'm going to go back. And then that sort of the whole thing could fall apart, right? Um, And what we want is to get to an economic union, like you have here, you know, in Europe, um, so that, Exactly. I want to be able to move and live wherever I want to be. I want to go work in Lagos, for instance. I want to teach at the uh, University of Ibadan. Uh, I want someone from Nigeria to come teach in Zambia. Those kinds of things. So I d- we, it is a step towards Kwame Nkrumah's dream, but we have to be very we have to manage that process. Yeah.
4: I think you said it very well. To be quite honest, no. But uh, and it looks like they're t- taking it step by step, and looking uh, back to when the EU was, before it was named the EU, it was a dumping place for uh, politicians we didn't like. Well, <laughs> th- no, Norway was never there, but I, I remember Margaret Thatcher just dropped people she didn't like. They were, you know, like some diplomats, they said, you don't want them in the country, so you ship them away. <laughs> uh, but then you have a white book that someone started and with a totally new idea and a dream about the EU. So I think that uh, starting with the African Union, that's working out. Um, You have the the presidency for six months, uh, the meetings are are, are working, um, and you also have um, uh, the army in place. Um, you have the t- uh, 2063 agenda. So it's kind of the building box. And I think it's building in the, r- in the right uh, tempo. Because you have to get everybody along. And they're not pushing. They t- of course they want Nigeria in. <laughs> uh, but that's after two years and everybody else are. Yeah. Uh, so I think that they... And they already see that there are differences so now we just have to uh, hope for good politicians taking the next steps
3: so um so i also have good vibes <laughs> I, I think uh <laughs> yeah, <everybody laughs> i i have to vibes. agree with <laughs> you unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so um you know it's it's really a, a historical event i think and um uh, you know, f- at least from my perspective, growing up in a in a country that has been highly integrated into the European market in both in terms of labor and goods and services and investment, I, you know, I, I think uh, uh, it's been going pretty well. And uh, you know, if this could somehow help boost the growth of Africa as well, I, I would be very uh, happy. Um, now, you know, this is only a small step. You know, it's an FTA and nothing else currently, but. I think if it could evolve into to something more along a few different th- dimensions, right? So one is deeper economic integration across countries, but perhaps this could also help to um, reform domestic policies, right? In terms of perhaps building better institutions, reducing corruption, um, uh, better infrastructure across and within countries and so forth. So maybe it can kind of kickstart something that has like lots of uh, benefits Um, so that's my my hope Mm. Mm.
1: so the panel is ending on a positive note Uh, (laughs) (laughs) what about the public who has questions (laughs) I'll see Uh, one, two, three can you, four, yep can you just come up and sit here in front because uh, no one's sitting there Uh, and I'll give you the microphone because I don't have that far reach Um, And you'll just uh, answer as you wish, between you. Um, And if you don't know the answer, then make something up. Okay,
0: I'm gonna start with you. Uh, All right, well, first of all, a big thank you to the panel. Uh, You've really uh, um, shared a lot of your knowledge and I've come to learn a lot more of the agreements after listening to you than coming in here. In fact, so much that I realized my question is more of a hypothetical because I was of the understanding that free movement was already part of the agreement and my question relates to free movement and health, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Um, So I'm wondering, with the potential future situation of free movement across the continent and the health systems in Africa being incredibly diverse, having some countries with excellent health systems, such as Uganda and Kenya and, and others, where uh, government-funded health systems are truly quite poor, are we risking a situation with a massive brain drain where the doctors will search the hospitals that are properly funded by these countries' prospective governments, and even wider disparity between the health services uh, accessible to the general African public, um, and more health inequality. Thank you.
1: I, I think you can just answer that first. Uh, <laughs> <because> <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot to remember. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody has an answer. Do you have an answer to that?
3: So, so I, I can't yeah. answer much of the specifics uh, of this question, but, but I have just one comment. And, and again, I, I think we can relate it a little bit to the European Union. Um, so um, uh, so free labor mobility, that creates a lot of movement of, of people, certainly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think uh, in Europe, the, where we saw this really happening was in the Baltic countries. So the the Baltics lost roughly 10% of their population when they entered the EU in 2004. So that's <laughs> that's a staggering number, right? Uh now these are very small countries. So it didn't really matter for the rest of the European Union because they were easily absorbed. But of course if you know think about if like if 10% of Nigeria were to leave <laughs> That would create uh, massive uh, at least problems in the short run. Mm. So I, I think you're, uh, you, you point to something important, and maybe in particular in, in the health sector, it might be important, but I think it's, it's broader than that as well. That's you know big movements of labor in a short time period. that's a challenge, and somehow we have to manage that.
4: Mm. Mm. And just relating to the EU., look at what is happening now with Brexit because they have lots of nurses from the EU. They are leaving in huge numbers. And the NHS has problems before they started leaving the country. And now they are, uh, a lot of them are leaving, and we don't know how that will end. So I definitely think hypothetical or not is an extremely important uh, question that you ask, because there will be challenges. Most, p-
2: most probably. I just want uh, I, I to add and say, um, uh, actually, interestingly, uh, it occurred to me as I heard the two panellists talking and as you're asking your question, it's funny. So South Africa is for the free trade agreement. I mean, they were one of the first ones to sign and they love it. But guess what? When it comes to free movement of people, South Africa is always you know, like jittery. So it's almost like the reverse of the Nigerian situation. Nigeria wants free movement of people. Yeah, then 10% Nigerians can go away <laughs> to be somebody else's problem. But <laughs> when it is, so Nigeria wants free movement of people, not so much the trade agreement. South Africa, on the other hand, is always for trade agreements, not so much for free movement of people. So you see what's going on there. Uh, but the question about health and brain drain, you're right. Um, but one of the things that seems to happen, uh, there's always like a very careful management of the movement of health workers. So for instance, I think for Zambian nurses to come and work in the UK, it used to be easier way back but it's become a lot more difficult so you have to get like your government has to approve that you're going away um so maybe one of the ways sounds a bit draconian i wouldn't want to be the one who's denying somebody the ability to go abroad and work in a healthcare facility abroad or next door but this is how it's managed right um it's a sort of it's sort of a blunt inst- blunt instrument to fix fix a thing. So, you're right. I mean, we could, you could find just a whole lot of our healthcare workers move to another country and that's a big problem. But you can manage this. One way is to have these draconian things where you say, don't go yet. Another way is to just train people. You know, Again, you could have very nice, from a trade point of view, trading services, you can have a very nice healthcare university somewhere in Kenya training all these people who end up then working across the continent. So, example.
5: Uh, my name is Camilla. Uh, I, I'm a researcher focusing specifically on the Nigerian Labour Congress, and, uh, <laughs> but I have not discussed uh, free trade agreements with them, unfortunately. But they, uh, I think, just to start, I think the opening question is very interesting in that kind of, is this kind of the dream, the Pan-African dream or the free trade nightmare? <laughs> Because the gut reaction for labor is free trade means less work in general. The left is generally more resistant on, on free trade agreements than others. So, so I would encourage the panel to be a little bit more leftist. In, in beca- because the leftists may have some experiences and some perspectives. Uh, and, but I do think that one of the reasons why the African unions, apart from the NLCs, has been quiet on this one is partly because, in the international setting, the pan Africanism and the regional structures, the, the experiences of, of uh, relative free trade agreements have been supported by the unions. So I think there is this kind of the, the kind of leftist gut reaction does not necessarily apply in a pan African context apart from the challenges wi- with South Africa. So I think there's something specifically African in that. Uh, setting there. That being said, Africans have a long history of liberalization and opening of uh, freer if not fully free trade since the 80s. They're more integrated internationally towards the not internally but externally than almost any other continent or country. So and from a labor perspective The association with that is loss of jobs, loss of conditions, loss of salaries, loss of opportunities, and generally losing out. This is what liberalization generally means, especially in Nigeria. Manufacturing collapsed. It was big. And this is also why I think the Manufacturing Association in Nigeria is, as the Kenyan, against this. Buhari has explicitly said that it's because the Manufacturing Association and the unions have been against this is because they are now trying to rebuild a manufacturing sector that has been on their back. Nigeria is also an extremely vulnerable economy because of the oil. So they are under the Dutch disease. So they will probably not, because of inflation and challenging economies, be the ones that gain relative to other countries in these issues. But I have a question to the panel, because you only mentioned tariffs, but there are also other issues. There are services, there are others. So, so since I don't know enough about this, aren't there other issues? Uh, I just googled quickly, intellectual property rights. What other issues? It's not like just manufacturing goods that will be traded. So, so what happens to the rest of the economy uh, with... with uh, uh, I, I used to be Johan in when <laughs> there was this, the WTO uh, Doha round, when there was a lot of discussion on intellectual property rights, privatization of education and all those issues, to what extent does this liberalization of trade means also privatization? To what extent does it also mean that it will reduce the state's ability to intervene in the economy? Nigeria, again, Buhari, one of the reasons why he's been very popular in the north is that he has opened up for fertilization subsidies in the agricultural sector. Will this agreement also challenge those issues of the state intervention? So to put myself open here, I'm generally skeptical to any (laughs) kind of thinking that free trade just opens up and everything will be happy afterwards. I think there's so much more to this than, than has been discussed. And just on a little note to Andreas, I'm very curious on how free trade would help corruption and governance. That, that does not fly automatically because in my logic, good governance is about strong state institutions. So my previous questions on kind of liberalizing trade and investments and all those things is often associated with limiting the state. And how can limited states be able to grow stronger institutions under this. So I'm, um, yeah. A very long
3: question. Yeah, back. there were <laughs> many, questions. Well, many questions, but but you ended with one, one to me, so <laughs> I, I think I guess I can start with that one. So, so I guess what I had in mind uh, there was, you know, say an example like um, um, import quotas, right? So, there are plenty of anecdotes where we know that import quotas have been allocated to influential people that people that have had connections to to politicians, for example, so getting rid of import quotas is one way of limiting uh the potential for bribes simple as that um, yeah now um, um yeah you had you had many many uh, many other comments as well. I just want to say one thing so um I think um it's, so the the way I think about it is that you know we, you can think of two two worlds like so one world is where I have a 20% tariff and you have a 20% tariff and we're selling stuff to each other but we're paying that 20% every time right and then we have another world where we have 0% tariff um but it's not like it's difficult to have something something in between. It's not like I can have a 20% tariff and you, you don't because then you're gonna say, hey, you know, I, I have zero and you have 20. That that's not fair, right? So it's a little bit of a give and take situation. If we're gonna get if are gonna get import tariffs down, um, well, then that other country has also to to re- reduce their tariffs. So, so in the sense that what it means is that well, the import competing sector in you know, Nigeria, they're going to be hurt by this, but it also means that there are some individuals in Nigeria now that can sell stuff more cheaply to Ethiopia, uh, right? So I, I think that's the other, that's that's the other piece of it that is very important to keep in mind that this might also create some new opportunities, and I think that's that's important. So, so I, I just wanted to add, uh, so you're right that there are lots of other things coming. And I think, for example, intellectual pro- intellectual property is going to be in phase two. Yep. So we don't really know anything about that at the, at the current stage, I think. Yep. Yeah.
4: No, um, that was one of my points. Because the right now they're talking about uh, products and services, and the tariffs are an important part of it. But there's no doubt that the non-tariff barriers are much larger uh, and hindering. Uh, and I uh, ILO uh, recent uh, said that about the informal sector in Africa has 66 percent of the employment in sub-Saharan Africa, and 42 percent or something in North Africa. Uh, going back to uh, compliance and. Um, uh, being uh, more, t- more transparent, if the government gets their um, uh, things in order and makes it more easy to establish a company, even a one-person company like we have in Norway, um, an Easy Inc. it takes 20 minutes to do it online. Um, they have that already in Uganda. It's a Norwegian company, Labremus, who created that online um, model. So it's a one-stop shop uh, to open or start a business. And of course, if you make it easy for people to start a business, you will get them uh, into the formal sector. And when you have businesses in the formal sector, then you will actually also then hire people in the formal sector. And not the informal sector. So there are many steps and many different steps that you have to take. I'm not saying that a free trade agreement is everything for everybody, but I'm not on the side who says that if someone wins, someone loses. I don't believe that. Because we will not be, Norway would not be in this position. We had a small open economy, we are totally dependent uh, on import export. And our economy has become great. Looking at the European Union, some c- countries indeed. But in general, if we take away those uh, hands <laughs> uh, or the straws, there are possibilities. And in regards um, of the intellectual p- property and investments, it's in phase two, so right now we don't know, but it will be but uh, they want products and services in the agreement.
2: Um, Kamala, that's a great question. Um, And you're right. So when we look back to the 80s and these dark years of structural adjustment, I mean, those were dark years. I mean, industry was decimated. Uh, We did actually have very good manufacturing. You're right. Nigeria had maybe 12% of GDP was manufacturing. Uh, The same in Zambia, the same across much of the continent. And that was just decimated when the structural adjustment years came. Now, when the structural adjustment years came, they came with a lot of things. So part of it was liberalize trade-wise, get rid of subsidies, uh, get the prices right, retrenchments, close that industry, that kind of stuff. And what we tend to know now is that that was crazy. That was nonsense. And even the IMF themselves, the high priests of this kind of nonsense, even they themselves now have taken out papers that say we were wrong. We should have actually managed that process properly. So now you're right that when the word free trade comes up, we should be afraid. But I think in this instance, it's. Uh, I wish we had a better Swahili word for it. But I think in this instance, it is the case that I think we need that kind of free trade to trade with each other. I mean, it is crazy that we don't trade as much as we can with each other. And from the point of view that we don't have, we don't have any industry at the present moment, and we know from history, maybe from South Korea's uh, stories, that it was export-led growth. South Korea would not be where it is today if they couldn't export those cars to the rest of the world. China, which has, in our the last 30 years transformed the lives of millions of people. I mean, The poverty rates in China in the 80s were high, and now it is very low in 30 years. That miracle was buttressed in a way by the fact that China could export to the rest of the world. So export-led growth does help, and I think that's what we're trying to do uh, with the free trade agreement on the continent, is to say there's 1.2 billion people. Can we sell more to these people? It's going to be very difficult for African countries to export manufactured goods to the rest of the world, right? Uh, Bangladesh can do that very well. China is still doing some of that. Uh, Vietnam is doing that very well. But can we then try to exploit the local market and so on? And, so on? and you're right. So we have to then manage this process. And this is why uh, Katrina said it earlier. We, for instance, have started by classifying the countries into different. Okay, these ones are more vulnerable. I think they're calling them uh, LDCs. They're more vulnerable than they Less vulnerable ones are calling them LDCs, uh, non-LDCs, and then they are the exempted ones. So uh, my own Zambia falls into the careful one. Maybe you know Ethiopia is also strangely enough in that group. Uh, obviously, Nigeria is not in any classification because they haven't signed. Uh, but so there's some careful thought about it, and I think part of it informed by the lessons from the 80s and 90s. We learned these lessons hard. Lives were destroyed. So I think at, in Addis Ababa, I can imagine them, hopefully, worrying about these things. And uh, you're right, it also matters who's whispering into their ears, what sort of ideology are they selling to their folks and artists, that sort of matters. But I think, I hope, like a lot of those guys are now in their 50s, 60s. I'm sure when they were 30 years old, they saw this decimation happening before their eyes. So one hopes that they learned those lessons and they'll be able to manage this process better. But you're completely right, yeah.
4: Just one more thing when you mentioned uh, China. I think that is a good thing now for Africa to come together and decide on what they want and how they want to shape their future. Otherwise, China and the U.S. will compete and make them choose. And I think it's a better choice for Africa to you know stand up for themselves and say, this is what we want. If you want to trade with us, these are our rules. Because... There are uh, lots of good businesses coming out of China, but not all of them. They have, you know they bring their own people in, and they, they don't give work to the locals. That's one challenge. So I think that Africa can do something uh, and come together in a good way.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm curious now, though uh,
5: I have to say that Norway did have a lot of tariffs and a lot of barriers before we opened up to uh, liberalizing our market. So the African countries have not been able to do the same, and the Asian tigers and China did the same. So, so that, but that question is, to what extent does that mean that within Africa can they have barriers externally, outside Africa, to China? When I go to, if there's anything I meet in Nigeria, that's my taxi driver, it's my friend in the union, they go on a regular basis when they are low on money, they lend a little bit from their uncle and go to China and import fabrics in a country that's now trying to build their manufacturing in fabrics. So so to what extent can, is there any possibility to kind of protect within Africa or is it, or is it just another, fear? Uh, where were,
3: yeah. I'm not sure I understood the question but if the question if is about internally, can we yeah. keep others out to build up internally because it almost sounds yeah. so, so the answer is yes so, so, so this, this, uh, um, this is a, a free trade agreement which means that every country is free to set its own external tariff and it doesn't ne- even meet need to be the same for all members of the bloc so yeah,
2: but, but I think the the more important part is, and you're right, when the industri- the now industrialized countries, when they were industrializing, they could use all these things. They could use tariffs. I mean, there's a famous quote that Hajun Chang uh, sort of pre- presented in one of his lectures where he quotes a statement which says we have to protect our infant industries. We can't really afford to compete with Britain. We're still too young. We're still too fragile. And hajun Chan says, do you know who that is? Who was saying that uh, comment? It was Alexander Hamilton, who was Treasury Secretary in the U.S. in 19th century. So even the U.S., they, they had a period when they had infant industries that had, to be, that had to be protected. So you're right. When the now industrializers were industrializing, they could use all sorts of stuff, tariffs, blah, blah. Uh, now, it's a bit more difficult now, given that we're all... Party to the WTO, so we use much less tariffs. But there's so many other things that you can do. You know, you could uh, industrial policy. You could set up development banks that can give loans, right? So you just maybe call them loans and not subsidies or whatever. You know, you can. So there's so many things you can do uh, internally to spur industry. Uh, I mean, for me, if we could just sell, there's 1.2 billion people who want to buy stuff, who want to, you know, get work. We, if we, if we have to industrialize, we really have to, not f- ignore the market underneath our noses. That's huge, That's huge potential there. But we, these things don't happen magically. We can't just sit back and hope that there will be a million, a, a million alico dancotes will bloom. That's not going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. We have to sort of um, engineer that process. We have to think concretely about it. Right. I imagine Norway has a development bank, or at least I know Norway has a massive sovereign wealth fund. And I know you use that money for sparing entrepreneurial activities and those kind of things. We have to get to that point where we manage this process. It can't happen magically that, like the economics textbooks say it will happen. It's not going to happen. And if it does, if we allow it to happen automatically, then we're going to have discontent, the kind of discontent that results in a Trump or in a Boris Johnson, God forbid, you know, this, this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah.
4: Just a couple of comments on, you know, I was just reading here that some of the islands, of course, they have, you can hardly see them in, in regards to the GDP. Um, but I don't remember which, which island uh, it was, but they had removed the need for visa from African people. The tourism has boosted with 16%. A typical (laughs) non-tariff barrier. Um, I was working in East Africa with women entrepreneurs for five years. Uh, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and also from Ethiopia participants. They had no idea what kind of products that the other countries had. Because they always flew out. To buy things, they had no idea what Uganda had. The one from Kenya had never been in Tanzania. So I think that there are great possibilities within the continent, and the uh, and the proudness that each country feel should if getting them extended to the continent, the huge possibilities. So um, yeah.
6: Okay. Thank you so much. My name is uh, Johan Hermstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa. So, Camilla used to be me, like she said. Um uh, I have uh, I I think thank you so much for a very very interesting discussion. I think I think it's you've answered many of our questions excellently and here are some more. Um I mean, I I, I mean, there are so many questions um, popping up, really, so I'll try to limit myself. Um, it's, um, I think it's important to sort of keep in mind here uh, uh, a couple of like, the macro-development challenges that the continent, uh, continent as a whole is, is struggling with, and sort of my overall approach here is, is will the African Continental Free Trade Agreement solve these these problems or will it not will it possibly uh serve as a threat towards some of these i mean i, I like you say i'm i'm generally i have a g- good gut feeling however I i see a lot of potential um potential problem here coming up like you have you have two uh, main mega trends the first one is of course the the population growth the the increase the rapid increase in in the labor market i mean we have uh, staggering rates of unemployment official rates and unofficial rates um and it, just in order to keep up with the growth uh, the 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 additions to the labor market we'll have to see a creation of jobs in the, in somewhere around 15 to 20 million people uh, jobs each year just to keep track with with, with, with unemployment rates, rates right so what is needed here uh, n- In order to to have a satisfactory uh, uh, economic, so to say, economic growth on the content, you'll have to see growth rates which are similar or even exceed the types of growth rates that we've seen in East East Asia throughout the last couple of decades, right? So China, the growth rates of China, the growth rates of Taiwan, and so on, need to be uh, parallel in order not to have a real a decrease of uh, in, in, in economic uh, values to share around within African countries so that 's a quite staggering challenge really uh, secondly, we see that that once again i mean uh, African countries are psychically uh, entering into debt defaults and trouble with handling its 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 um, uh, obligations uh, we know that that uh, as a whole, if we s- revenue to GDP rates in, in on the African continent uh, are much lower uh, than for for Western countries, obviously, right? So, okay, uh, not only is customs an important part of government revenue, but also in gen- in general revenue to GDP. I mean, the the ability of African countries to to um, to tax its economies, even taking into account these customs, is much lower than than Western countries, right? Um, this is uh, so. So uh, we see that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's it's not an unproblematic uh, scenario to see uh, a significant decrease uh, uh, in in government revenue from customs because we're already at, at a stage which is quite critical for many African African countries, uh, and has been been that for a long time. We see that. That African countries are not necessarily able to. Um, um, I mean, it's, it's easier to dodge tax uh, internationally if you're a, if you're a multi- nat- multinational company than to dodge customs. Uh, so uh, upon, upon import to a country, which, which means that okay, are we? Um, I mean. Uh, if we're going to trim the state while also uh, increasing taxation um, robustness or or ability for for revenue authorities across the African country, uh, continent, 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 that's actually a really really big challenge, right? And it's also a really really big challenge that we know that always for a free trade agreement there is going to be adjustment costs. So you go, there's going to be some sort of uh, Manufacturing uh, labor trouble in, in Nigeria, for instance, um, and uh, that's. I mean, when we when we calculate the gains from trade, we always uh, or we very seldom take into account the, the effects of employment uh, um, unemployment in our in our models. Um, but that's something we need to take into account in the real life and not least something that political leaders will have to take into account, both the drop in, in revenue and the, the potential unemployment uh, effects on the sh- on the short term at least. So uh, what I fear is that this will remain the dream of Nkra- Nkrumah, right? Okay, so we see political leaders on the African continent which are... Uh, Pledging in the opposite direction of Brexit and uh, the U.S.-China trade war, right? We are talking about our togetherness and about a customs, uh, uh, not the customs unions, but 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 uh, a free trade area. Uh, but when when push comes to shove, <laughs> there are some pretty significant challenges here that domestic leaders leaders will have to deal with, uh, and it's also hard to see how how uh, trade between s- fairly similar structures of production will lead to like a long-term producti- productivity growth, growth like an entrance into a global value chain where you're able able to do as this e- the East Asian countries were, you know, to enter into uh, some kind of light industry and then move on up the value chain to to more value addition and more productivity-driven. Uh, driven types of production and now being a, like a high-tech high tech economies. Um, I don't uh, at least initially I don't see sort of the more dynamic gains of trade uh, entering or coming out of this, this free trade agreement. So that's, I mean like I, like I started out I have a positive gut feeling but there are a lot of buts here you know. Mm-hmm. Um, do Am I completely off grid here? Or what, uh, uh, what do you think? I mean is this significant or not. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, please answer Johan's very very short uh,
6: question. <laughs> <laughs>
3: would
4: would uh, you mind I just repeating <laughs> a couple
1: of <laughs> So
3: I, I have a couple of points uh, I want to make. Um, and um, I, uh, certainly I think you're right that we, you know, we we should uh, you know be concerned and follow this process uh, very very carefully and and as you also mentioned, we should make sure that we uh, do, do it right, right? So, um, but, uh, but I, I want to um, address kind of two things you said. Um, and first was the issue with population growth. And it's kind of interesting. When, when I sat there, I, I kind of realized that we actually have exactly the same debate here in Norway, but just opposite. So our prime minister said, was it like uh, on your or something, that she is afraid of the population decline, what that would mean, to uh, no, no, the Norwegian economy, and since then there has been a like a, a like in a, a debate among macroeconomists here in Norway, <laughs> what what, uh, what we should think of this, and I you know I'm not a macroeconomist myself, but I think what is the consensus among most economists is that population growth or decline doesn't matter, and why? Well. You know, if you have one more individual in the economy, you're going to have one more job. If you have one less individual in the economy, you're going to have one less job. So more people means also that there's there're going to be more jobs created, or less people means that you're going to have fewer jobs created. Think of another example. Think of you know if you, you know if you uh, cut Norway in half, so each country is going to be half the size, you're also going to have half the number of jobs in each half, right? So, I think you know people also create jobs. That's a very, very important uh you know what we call a general equilibrium kind of thinking that I, th- I think a lot of people kind of uh um, don't think about. but you know once you think about it, it's kind of obvious. Um, now, if this is a challenge for a trade agreement i'm I'm not so sure um, yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, and then my i the other point i wanted to make was about uh, tariff tariff revenue and and i also made that point while sitting here a few minutes ago and um but and, and i think it's uh it's a valid point but i don't think it should be overstated either so i was kind of trying to do the math while sitting here and uh we know that intra-african trade is roughly 20%, right or less than 20% um, and uh, let's say that uh, revenue from tariffs is around 16% of total government revenue, okay? So then we're talking about one-fifth of 16%. And it's probably even less because there are, there, there's already this alphabet soup of existing free trade agreements so that the ta- the, most of the tariff revenue is not coming from within Africa trade, it's coming from external trade. So, so quantitatively, I don't think this is a big issue. It, it certainly there there has to be some revenue generated somewhere, but, but hopefully, you know, just by increased economic growth, you could probably get that from other sources, as you mentioned. Yeah.
4: Now, on the note on growth, <laughs> uh, I just tried to find that find the IMF um, numbers, and they have calculated that it will be a 16% growth if all countries in Africa um, come into the agreement. And that's 16 billion US dollars. So that's a a lot of money. Um, You talked about the number of jobs that needs to be created, about 20 uh, million a year. Nine out of 10 will be in private sector so we we need to ensure the private sector um, register, the company, uh, the people, so they can pay taxes. And if 66% of the employed people in Africa are not registered, then you have, and I think that if you go, it's about 90% of the women owned are uh, informal. So you have so many companies, and you don't need to have an extremely high tax rate to at least get quite a bit of that um, return in. So um, I'm not pro high taxes, but a small tax from everybody. And then also maybe the, uh, the people will have to have more trust in the government. So the government have the trust and get the money in order to do their job for infrastructure, for school, for health care. You forgot about the oil volatility, that's even <laughs> one more challenge.
2: Uh, can I just add uh, quickly? Um, so th- you you raise very good questions, and when when you were raising the questions, I thought to myself, "How can it get worse?" right All these things that you're mentioning, how can they they are so bad, but how can they get worse with the free trade agreement? I think they can only get better. that's what I think. you know um, So you're talking about population. we need to create jobs, right. One mechanism to create jobs is if we can sell more stuff to each other, right If these estimates that are coming from the AU. are to be believed. And they seem believable, you know, I mean, nobody knows the future anyways, but they seem to be sensible projections. They're talking about big boosts in GDP and uh, economic activity and those kind of things. Then you can create jobs. Again, you have to sort of, what kind of trading activity do we want to do? We have to do more manufacturing. Then you can create jobs because manufacturing makes it easy for low-skilled Uh, people to get jobs, those kind of things. So these young people are going to come, and we want them to come. I mean, I also agree with Andrea that uh, in this famous economist, Julian Simon, who said uh, human beings are the ultimate resource. I want more people. That's good. And it's clear you guys are anxious about not having people here. So clearly Julian Simon was right in some ways. Uh, But the other thing that I... Then you're talking about you're right, that... Okay, there's a bit about tax revenue. uh, And I I mean, so the story about tax revenue and revenue capacity in Africa is sort of partly what Camila said. We collected a lot of taxes in the immediate post-independence era. We had a capable state, a big state, and then this state was decimated because the state was taught to roll back, you know? So the state capacity reduced, and part of the reason why we collect so much tax is because we have a small state. But there are initiatives now to get the state to be more capacitated, more bigger. So if you look at Zambia's story, uh, now we collect a little bit more revenue as a percentage of GDP, maybe a percentage point more or two or something like that, and Mm -hmm. we're trying to go there. So there's a whole exercise in Zambia to have SMMEs register. There's a whole uh, educational process around registering for tax and why it's nice to pay your taxes, and most people want to pay their taxes, but it's what Katrina said. We don't trust that the government will spend that money properly. So a lot of people want to pay. I mean, w- I, mean I benefited from free education because my parents pay taxes. I want to pay, but is the president going to buy a new jet? I worry about those kinds of things. So these are the kind of debates we're having uh, in Zambia. And then the last bit about, your are right, um, we all have the same structures of production. How are we going to trade to each other if we're all producing oranges, for instance? That's why there's need to be to a smart industrial policy. This has to be coordinated. It has to be managed, right? Hopefully, this secretariat is going to manage this. I hope, you know, we have to say, Grieve, you can't do oranges anymore. Johan is going to do oranges. You do apples, right? And we're going to fund you to help you do apples. This kind of stuff has to happen. Um, so, I think for me, I still want to appeal to you, Johan, to have to remain to still have positive vibes. <laughs> this is the first time we've done something. We even imagine we managed to get presidents in Kigali last year to sit around just to discuss this thing, and they did it, and they signed something, and there seems to be movement around it, and very soon now I know they're going to talk about the secretariat and where the secretariat will be. So I think this has never happened before, and I certainly hope in 20 years' time Johan will be wrong. Right? That's what I'm hoping for, that Johan will be wrong, and uh, you know, that we could have gotten this thing working. Yeah. Who are you, by the way? I'm Robert Cheng from Uganda is the argument the best alternative for boosting the, the, the trade within African countries? Then the other question is, uh, are there how effective and useful are, d- are the, the different economic blocks in Africa, like COMESA, have been? Are there any lessons to be learned from that? Um, so, you're right. That is the very act of signing a piece of paper Going to magically uh, increase the intra-African trade. That's actually, and I, I think at the beginning I was also saying it's not very clear what hinders intra-African trade. Yes, partly it's a Uh but also partly it's other things. Like, uh, you know, you're from Uganda, I living in Lusaka, manufacturing toothpaste. It will be difficult. It's difficult for me to get it to you. Yeah, it has to go to Dar es Salaam or go to Durban. And then go up to uh, the port of Mombasa, be put on a train, hopefully get to you in Kampala. So again, you're right. So is it the infrastructure? There's all these kinds of questions. So I don't think the very act of signing a piece of paper is going to magically uh, increase inter-African trade. There has to be support for these other things that also matter, right? Um, Now, what lessons from other regional economic blocs? So I sort of know a little bit about SADIC, where I live, Southern African development community. It certainly has increased intra-SADIC trade. Uh, From the time the free trade protocol came in 2008, I think intra-African trade has gone up massively. The Only problem is most of that is South Africa, right? Most of that is South Africa's gain. And that's why South Africa loves SADIC. They want SADIC to continue existing. So most of it has been South Africa's gain. Zambia has got nothing from it. Uh, our, our, our stores are full of South African products, right? Yeah, so that's... Uh, I don't know about the East African story. I like to imagine most of those benefits have probably accrued to Kenya as well. So this, those are some lessons, and we have to say, we have to think about how could we have done these regional economic agreements differently so that everybody benefits, and part of that is you have to manage it. You have to manage this process and say it just can happen automatically, yeah,
1: think we're going to have to finish. <laughs> thank you for all your questions, so interesting, and your little speeches, also really nice. <laughs> 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 and thanks to the wonderful panel. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, and please become members of Feglesrådet for Africa, if you're not.
5: Uh, thank you.